And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the hosts attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyxiadian. And today we are going to be discussing another controversial topic. And Onyx, what are we going to be talking about today? We're going to talk about a topic in regards to justification. It is a, um, a theory that justification is twofold where there's your initial justification and then there's a final salvation. And we're going to talk about how that is unbiblical and heretical. And we have invited a special guest to help us to delve into this topic. Who is it? Our special guest today is Pastor Patrick Hines, and he is the pastor of uh, Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. Welcome, Pastor Hines. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And it's good to be reunited after um, a couple of years of me being off social media, Matthew. Yes. <laughs> you and I were kind of like two compadres that were alone fighting this fight. I know. And I remember, and I, like when I saw your name again, um, when you, you emailed me, I was like, I, I remember that guy's name, and I remembered he was a good guy. <laughs> I just couldn't remember from where. I was like, oh, yeah, he was the guy that was uh, with me, getting all the mud thrown on us. About the <laughs> you remembered he was a good guy? That's a bad memory. Yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to Odie. <laughs> but, yeah, but in all, all seriousness, though, I thought that there's a guy that, um, that loves the gospel like I do. And, and really has a burden to make sure that it's clearly an announced and that it's protected um, when it's denied like this. Uh, I've been so surprised at how quiet everyone has been while this has been going on. So, Well, I sure appreciate that. So why don't we get started? There's a lot to cover here. So we're going to obviously talk about John Piper's views on justification, particularly his view that's called a two-stage view of salvation or justification. So before we get into that, Patrick, why don't you define for us the biblical definition and confessional definition of justification by grace through faith alone? 
Well, I'm a, a Presbyterian, and so I um, took ordination vows, and I'm a I'm a, a strict subscriptionist. I've never really understood what good faith or form subscription or system subscription uh, really means. So I hold uh, en toto uh, to our creed, the Westminster Standard. So um, justification, um, biblically considered and from the time of the Reformation, um, is defined as those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. And then it says, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them. That means not, not for any subjective transformation in them done by the spirit of God or anything like that, um, or anything done by them, not by any, any works that they do, do of any kind, no subjective transformation whatsoever, but for Christ's sake alone nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, that's a shot of Arminianism, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing, that means legally crediting or transferring legally, the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it's the gift of God. So justification is solely, completely, and only a change in the sinner's legal standing before God. It has no reference whatsoever to anything about that individual subjectively. It has no reference to any change in their character, any change in their behavior, any change uh, in their affections, or anything of the kind. It is simply the, the changing of their legal status before the law of God from condemned to justified. And it's based solely upon the work of Christ his cross work being accepted by God as the satisfaction for their sins. The satisfaction of divine justice is at the cross and the whole life of obedience to the law of God of Jesus Christ being transferred to their legal account such that they now have, as the great Charles Hodge said, a legal title to eternal life. And when we say that it's by faith alone, the next point of the confession, 11.2 says, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces. That's sanctification and the other things that God always does uh, in the, the lives of people that he justifies. But faith is the alone instrument. So just kind of to summarize briefly, when, we, when the Reformation said, uh, following the apostle Paul, that justification is by faith alone. What that, really, what that really is saying is that justification is by the righteousness of Christ alone. So when we say faith alone, what we're saying is that there's nothing in addition to Christ alongside of Christ or instead of Christ. It is Christ alone. We, our confidence for getting all the way into heaven rests only on Jesus Christ, and that that special place of confidence and faith and reliance is never shared with anything other than Christ at all. And that's really what the heart of justification is. It is a strictly forensic legal declaration made by God as judge of, about the sinner's status based solely on the work of Christ. Thanks, Patrick. So faith then itself, We now that you've just. Um, define justification. So faith then is what? That's the means 
to the imputation of that justification upon us? Yes, faith is is what receives and rests on Christ. So when you think about um, when you think about death and standing before God and being judged by God, your confidence for getting into heaven is that Jesus Christ's righteousness is accepted by God as judge as if it were your own. And Christ's cross work is accepted by God as the full payment of my sins. So what a person's confidence is resting on um, has to be Jesus and nothing in addition to him and nothing that is done by the spirit of God in me either. So faith is simply receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. And that's, that's all that faith is. And so all of the stuff where you have the conflation of repentance into faith or obedience into faith, faith is simply relying on Jesus Christ. And that, that's all that it is. So faith is a passive instrument. That's right. That's right. Faith is the opposite of working. And that's what Paul says in Romans 4, 4 and 5, to the one not working, but believing on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So to further that point, uh, faith itself is also a gift, as we understand the word of God tells us. So it's passive, it's a gift, it, it, um, it's the means to our justification, but justification itself is what you stated earlier. It's, our declar- it's the declaration of God upon us. That's right. That's right. And, and it's so it's extraordinarily important um, that justification is, is protected as really being the heart of the gospel. And that's why when Paul wrote Galatians, and the reason he wrote that as, as ferociously as he did, is to get the doctrine of justification wrong, to get the, the basis upon which a, a sinner is made right with God and can enter into heavenly glory wrong, as Paul states it, is another gospel, which is no gospel at all. And other gospels can't save us. And that that's why... That's why I, I appreciated, you know, Matthew's willingness to help me out on Facebook a few years ago, and, and others that have been thankful for the, some of the sermons I've preached and some of the stuff I've done on this issue. We're talking about whether or not people are going to heaven or not here. That, that's how serious th- this issue is. If you get justification wrong, according to the apostles, you have the gospel wrong, and a false gospel can't save people. Mm-hmm. So that's why this is so important. Okay, now since we've gotten the biblical definition of justification out of the way, what does John Piper espouse? Well, I was sent a link to a um, a podcast by a fellow named Paul Flynn. You guys heard of Paul Flynn? I know the name, but I've never heard him. Yeah, he's uh, from Ireland, and um, oh, I do know who he is. Okay, yes, the real thick Irish accent. Um, he did a program where he was responding to uh, John Piper's uh, Reformation sermon, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And the the sermon was, was called something like how not to use a Reformation slogan or something like that. And I was listening to Flynn playing clips from Piper and I was really, I was actually driving my kids uh, to go swimming somewhere. So I was like trying not to wreck the car while I was listening to this, but I kept, I kept pausing. What did he just say? Like, I just was so taken back by it. And Flynn didn't play the whole sermon. I thought, well, I'm gonna, I want to listen to this whole thing where I can have some quiet, like in my study here. Listen to the whole thing, and I was really, really shocked at, at the things that he was saying. Um, and the the quotation that I I pointed out, I actually preached a sermon on it uh, not too long after that, but where he he spells out um, 
in justification, faith receives a finished work of Christ accomplished outside of us, imputed to us. In sanctification, um, we have an ongoing power of Christ for transformation. But then he has this third category that he calls final salvation. And he says, um, in final salvation, faith is confirmed by the sanctifying fruit it has borne, and we are saved through that fruit and that faith. And I was kind of thinking, okay, that is, that is not a helpful way of putting that. But listening to the, that sermon several times, and then looking up other quotations in his book, Future Grace, and his book, Desiring God, he says um, in the article that, that we pulled up there, Does God Really Save Us by Faith Alone? He says, we should not speak of getting to heaven by faith alone in the same way we are justified by faith alone. Now, you remember what I said when I was defining justification by faith alone? The reason the Reformation emphasized that, that justification is by faith alone, that is a shorthand way of saying justification is by the righteousness of Christ alone. So when you hear Piper saying, we should not speak of getting to heaven by faith alone, what he's really saying is, we should not speak of getting into heaven by the righteousness of Christ alone. In the same way we are justified by faith alone. And you play that quote in the, the introduction to your um, podcast where he says, you don't get into heaven by faith alone. In fact, I remember that whole section of the sermon. That was where the wheels really fell off because Piper is, is criticizing a survey of evangelicals that was done there. And he says, remember the survey that was done and they surveyed to find out what everyone believes. Um, and they're not really evangelicals anymore. Piper says, that was a totally confused survey because the survey asked, how do you get into heaven? You don't get into heaven by faith alone. Right. You get justified by faith alone. I thought that is the clearest denial of the biblical and Reformation understanding of, of sola fide I've ever heard. And they did ask, they, excuse me, they did ask the right question. They actually did ask. That's a right question. <laughs> and I pointed out I pointed out when I responded to, to his uh, sermon, when I, I preached on it, that actually is a good question. How do you get into heaven? Uh, and the answer is by the blessed truth that Christ's cross work is sufficient to pay for all of my sins, and his righteousness covers me like Isaiah 61, 10's, uh, 61 verse 10 says, like a garment. Uh, he has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. That's the sole basis upon which we can enter heavenly glory. And in another part uh, of Piper's whole position, he really does think, and this is what is so surprising to me that more reformed, um, high-profile reform guys have not caught on to this. He really does think that hinging final salvation on our fruit is the answer to the charge of antinomianism. He really does. He, he thinks that's the biblical answer to it. and Because he says, we should not be telling people that you can live like the devil and still get into heaven. And so I remember when he, when he said that in the sermon, and I, and I was thinking, man, that's real similar to the charge that was brought against Paul. You guys know the reference, Romans 6.1. Mm -hmm. Shall we sin? Shall, shall we live like the devil so that grace can abound? And Paul's answer is not to introduce a third category, final salvation or final justification by works or by fruit, his answer is, how shall we who died to sin live, live in it any longer? His answer to it is the blessed doctrine of, of regeneration, the effectual call, that God crucifies the old man with its in its passions and its lusts, and he frees us from that slavery to sin. But Amen. that's 
not what gets us into heaven. And, and the irony is, and I pointed this out and when I preached on uh, the problem with Piper, is that his perspective leads to an entirely self-centered piety because now the motivation for my good works is my own final salvation rather than gratitude to God for his having already given me a title to eternal life. And by the way, he also denies um, our obedience to God by gratitude in his book, Future Grace. Yep. Yeah. Someone bought me that book like 15 years ago and I started reading it and <clears throat> I thought Piper was a really great reform guy. And I noticed right out of the gate, he praises to the highest heavens, a guy named Daniel Fuller. Yep. And I was thinking, is that the same Daniel Fuller that doesn't believe in inerrancy? Is that the same guy that doesn't believe in justification by faith alone? And I remember th and then finding out, uh, yeah, that's him. That's the guy that doesn't believe in biblical inerrancy and doesn't believe in sola fide. And I started thinking, how can we think that for Piper, justification by faith alone is an essential truth when the, a, his main mentor denies it? Uh, and then you find out later, actually, Piper's soteriology is almost identical to Fuller's minus that Piper has added the imputation of Christ's righteousness for initial justification. Other than that, it's the same doctrine as uh, Fuller's. So, so actually, you just mentioned imputation. So what does Piper mean that God is now 100% for us, that we get into a position where he's 100% for us? Does that mean that God is now a cheerleader for us, and then we hope we win the race or finish the race? Yeah, that section of, of his sermon where he, he emphasizes that, I mean, that, that's a biblical statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, Paul does say that. But it, it sounds awfully close to the Roman Catholic concept of the state of grace, because they would argue the same thing, that your initial justification or your, your initial step into the Christian life is entirely gratuitous. There's no works involved in it at all. Um, but that that's enormously problematic uh, to have uh, to, to say, well, God, God, now you're in a position where God is hundred percent for you. And I remember thinking as he's describing justification, he's very careful in saying not, not that you're now right with God and are going to heaven. It's you're in a position now where God's hundred percent for you. And you're in a position where now you can be pursuing holiness and putting sin to death. But justification, very clearly in his thinking, is not what gives you a title to go to heaven. And, and, that, and therein lies the problem. That, that's the two-stage thing on full display right there. Like you just said, justification for him is not what gives you a title to eternal life or to get you into heaven. It's what gets you into the initial phase of salvation, which he really sees as a process. In fact, listen, this is a quotation that I pulled up from uh, Desiring God, his, his manifesto for Christian hedonism. Desiring God. Listen to this quotation. He says, quote, When we cry, what must I do to be saved? The answer depends on what we are asking. How to be born again, how to be justified, or how to be finally welcomed into heaven. I see you shaking your head. Isn't that amazing? He separates all those things from one another. He says, when we, when we say that the answer is become a Christian hedonist, we mean God's work in, in new birth, our faith in Christ, and the work of God in our lives by faith to help us obey Christ. This is the fullest meaning of conversion. I mean, where do you even begin to unpack something like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How to be justified and how to be welcomed into heaven. Those are completely different questions in his thinking.
And biblically, those are really the same question. So what you're saying, excuse me, so what you're saying, Patrick, is that initial salvation or initial justification and final salvation are the same thing. Absolutely, they are. And, and that's not just a, a little hobby horse or a quirk. We're, we're talking about whether or not people are going to end up in heaven or hell here. I mean, that's how serious. And another thing, I just want to point this out too. I was thinking about this earlier today. John Piper used the passages in the book of Galatians in his sermon that condemn the very thing he's promoting. But he really thinks that what Paul is addressing in Galatians, it, Paul, Paul is addressing combining works with initial justification. He really thinks that that's all that's being condemned there. And I, and I said to the congregation, the congregation here, it's, it's profoundly disturbing to listen to someone quote the very Bible verses that condemn the position he's espousing while he's pretending to believe them. Oh, he, he quotes Galatians 5. I mean, Galatians 5, 1 through 4 is a, is a critically important passage of Scripture there. Um, and he even says, yeah, if someone, you know, wanted to challenge me and say, where do you prove sola fide in Scripture? Galatians 5 is, is where I'd go. He says in Galatians 5, 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And Piper even says... If you go the direction of justification by a little law-keeping, you go the direction of justification by total law-keeping. And I'm sitting there listening to that going, that's true, that's right, but you have to just keep reminding yourself, he doesn't think justification is what gets you into heaven. It's just the initial step. There's this second stage, like, like you said, the, the, the final salvation by fruit that's added to this. So... So in his article, um, and you can actually find this on Desiring God's website, it's called Will We, Will we Be Finally Saved by Faith Alone? And this is actually, I guess, a clarification to his um, really confusing and controversial sermon. And he says, we have to be careful about using the term justification interchangeably with salvation. It causes so much confusion. Well, it depends on the context. I mean, when we... When in systematic theology, when you talk about salvation proper and the, the category of systematic theology, soteriology, yeah, you're going to discuss justi justification, sanctification, adoption, um, and, and repentance unto life. You're going to discuss all that stuff in there. But when it comes to being saved from God's wrath at the final judgment, that is a, a, talking about justification. Um, so, yeah, you, you don't want to use them interchangeably, but you just need to be careful that you don't want to talk about being saved by your sanctification, which he does do that, uh, that we're saved through sanctification or that the final judgment is in accord with uh, our works and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, and that, that clarification video, if someone had sent that to me, see, he clarified. And I, I listened to that whole video too. And was like, he, well, he really just doubled down on, on what he's been saying all along. Um, yeah. He, he says people take two wrong turns. They hear hear what he's saying, and they think, oh, they say, well, final, final salvation, um, the, these things are necessary for final salvation. They draw two inferences from that statement, and both of them are false. One, they say final salvation then is dependent on us, decisively on us. Two, here's the next false inference. They say, therefore, it's uncertain. I could fail. I could lose my salvation, and I could be justified and then not justified. A child of God might lose his justification. He says, now both... 
those inferences are dead wrong, both logically and wrong biblically, or, or wrong biblically wrong. The, the problem is he doesn't answer what the real question is here. What, what we really want to find out from him is if justification is not the thing that gets you past the final judgment, it, this, this category that you're calling final salvation, um, if that is based on fruit inspection, and that's actually the decisive factor, uh, then you are saying that final salvation depends decisively on us. How, how can you escape that, logically speaking, I, I guess I would ask. Yeah, you know, I uh, speak to uh, many of my friends. I do have friends, actually. Not not many, but you do have yeah, some. I kind of exaggerated. <laughs> but I speak to uh, my friends, and I ask them uh, about this specific topic, and, um, and I show them these articles that uh, Piper's written, the interviews he's taken for the clarification. And they say, well, yeah, he's, he says he believes in uh, justification by faith alone. And that's why it's so difficult uh, to get this uh, error across because he's mixing the error with truth. And um, so, but he's making a distinction between two different subjects, which are, like you said, uh, the same thing, justification and, uh, you know, getting into heaven or sal our salvation in toto. So it, that, it's been very difficult to get that point across. Yeah, and that's that you're right. That has made it very confusing, and that that's why I felt the need to preach on it and to address it. Is he defines justification the same way that we would? The, the way he talks about it, he he does get it right, and he goes to the same passages too. But the real difference, if people want to kind of understand, like just boiling down, what what is the real issue here? What Piper is different from the Reformation, and we would maintain from the Bible on, is what justification accomplishes. Like like I said. Charles okay. Hodges' systematic theology is wonderful. His section on justification is great. And I still remember the first time I ever read that statement. Justification is what gives the believing sinner a legal title to eternal life. And that legal title to eternal that means once you're declared righteous, you are going to heaven. And that's all there is to it. You the, the requirements of God's law, which are which are a reflection of his own holiness, those have been met fully in what Jesus did at the cross and in giving us his righteousness. And, and I think, you know, if what Piper's saying is true, what, what an attack on the work of Christ is that? I mean, he really is saying that the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to your legal account doesn't guarantee you're going to heaven. It just gets you into a position where God is 100% for you. It do, it's not the same thing in his thinking as, quote-unquote, final salvation. And that's what I've tried to emphasize is when you listen to him talk about justification, uh, he gets the definition of it right. But you need to remember he does not think that accomplishes the same thing that we do, which is to give you a right to go to heaven. But Patrick, no holiness, no heaven. <laughs> that's what he said. No holiness, no heaven. That's right. Hebrews 12, 14. Um, and I, I've warned people about that too. You know, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 um, that he chose us uh, for salvation in sanctification of the spirit and, and belief in the truth. That, that's quoted, um, Hebrews 12, 14, um, and pursue, stri strive for peace with all men and pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You, you got to watch out when people pull phrases out of verses and, and turn them into mantras that really overthrow chapter-long discussions of the topic under consideration. You don't want to base your understanding of how you're getting into heaven on a passing statement in 2 Thessalonians 
a passage that's addressing the coming of the man of lawlessness. I mean, it's a very controversial passage in, in and of itself. And those who don't receive a, a love of the truth are given a, a spirit of deception and all that kind of thing. But, but you know, God chose you for salvation and sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. You really want to turn that into, you see then we won't be finally saved unless we have this sanctification. Like I remember when Piper quotes uh, Hebrews 12, 14, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is, the holiness without which we will not be finally saved. And I'm kind of like, that's not what the passage says. And once again, you're taking a passing statement out of a, a context like that and overthrowing the magisterial defenses of the gospel that you have in Galatians and Romans that go on for chapter after chapter. Yeah, and this isn't uh, a, a, a new belief that he had like just like you said like his book on future grace um he's been espousing this for years and uh i'm not sure why other um well-known pastors have not condemned it or at least made issue with it i know this might be a controversial statement but you know i think the reason why a lot of it comes down to they really don't know how to define justification themselves I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I, I think that's probably right. And, um, you know, the, one of the issues here of not understanding the imputation of Christ's righteousness, how significant that is and how important that is to the gospel is John Piper doesn't believe that there's a covenant of works in Scripture. Um, another person who doesn't believe there's a covenant of works in Scripture is Doug Wilson. Uh, Doug Wilson says he believes in the imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification. Piper says he believes in the imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification. The problem is their system doesn't need it. That's the problem. If there's no covenant of works that requires obedience, why do you need the imputation of Christ's righteousness? And it would also explain why if someone denies it, eh, they're still a Christian. They're still, they're still on my side because he doesn't have a covenant of works clearly laid out in Scripture where you have Adam entering into that, that covenant, breaking it, and then Jesus, the new covenant surety, who enters into that broken covenant of works and achieves its positive righteous requirements vicariously for us. And then that is our obedience to the law of God, accepted by God the Father in our place legally. And that, that alone is what gets us into heaven. Patrick, can you talk about when Piper says that there are other conditions to be met when it comes to salvation before we are finally saved? other conditions right um i think it's it's really unhelpful to speak of those things as conditions um i think the best way to, to look at them is the way scripture does and the way our confession does that saving faith in christ is always accompanied by all those other saving graces and so it's not really proper to speak of them as being conditions that we have to meet um it's it's better to speak of them as the fruit of God's redeeming work in the life of, of a believer. Um, as soon as you start using the, the, the idea that, well, the, yeah, you, faith is one condition and repentance is another condition. And then bearing the fruit of love is another condition. It, it really sounds like we, we achieve our entrance into heaven by fulfilling all these conditions. And so it's not really appropriate to speak of those things as conditions, in, in my opinion. Faith is the instrument that links us to Christ and that justifies us before God because it lays hold of Jesus Christ and is, is looking only to Jesus Christ. In the life of every believer, however, that person always will be 
born again by God's spirit. It's not a condition. It's a fruit. Um, that person will put sin to death. That person, the old man was crucified. That person is not a slave of sin any longer. They will start the long and arduous task of, of putting sin to death and falling on their face again and getting back up and you, you cling to the cross, do all of it. But that's not us meeting conditions. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of a, of a believer. Yeah, what I, a, a theologian said, uh, it's not a condition, but a consequence of faith. That's great. Yeah, good good way of putting it. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's the, the uh, natural byproduct of the new birth. You know, that person will, they'll be broken in their sin. They'll have a sense of, you know, I see my sin. I, I see it clearly. It's going to take me to hell. I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ and rely only uh, upon him. And then that person is going to be sanctified by the work of God in their life. Um, and people, you know, as a pastor, people struggle in their sanctification. You know, am I really a believer? Sometimes I feel like I don't even want to fight against sin anymore. <laughs> and I, I tell people, whether you like it or not, God's going to make you more holy. <laughs> um, he will make you more holy. He will, he will put, help you put sin to death, and he's going to conform you to the image of Christ. You just need to make sure you understand these categories. You keep your eyes fixed on Christ, not Amen. on your fruit, not on your fruit. Trust me. If you are a person who is prone to excessive self-examination, I want to assure you, no matter how mature you are, no matter how much victory you've had in your life, you're not going to find a whole lot to hope in by constantly looking into yourself. And it was Jay Gresham Machen made the, the comment um, when Christians are struggling with their sanctification and dealing with sin, Machen says, you need to recognize that it's, it's always important in your Christian life, take your eyes off of your miserable self and fix them on Jesus Christ. He's the source of it all. He's the source of it all. And I have to say, it comes out of these teachers' mouths all the time to constantly navel-gaze, to constantly inspect yourself to see what, if you're in the faith or not. And if you're constantly giving that diet to your sheep every Sunday, they're going to despair. There is no assurance in that whatsoever. And yet they preach assurance. Yeah, right. And one, one thing, and that's one thing, I there are three young men in the church here that are training for the ministry, and I'm overseeing their seminary education. And I've told them that you need to understand the, the gospel. You know, uh, Calvin's successor there in Geneva, Theodore Beza, had this great quotation. He said, the, the law is in everyone by nature. The gospel is not at all in us by nature. Right. And I have a, an old wooden deck on the back of my house, and the nails are constantly coming up. I said, you need to think of um, the people in your congregation like your back deck, and the gospel nail keeps coming out. you got to hammer that thing back in constantly. you got to constantly be going back to the gospel and explaining it uh, and um, preaching it preach Christ and him crucified. Um, you know, it was mentioned in the book, Christ the Lord. Rod Rosenblatt wrote a, a wonderful chapter called Christ died for the sins of Christians too. And we got to constantly be pushing people back to the gospel. Um, yes, you, you do. There, there, there is um, material in scripture calling for self-examination. We, we are to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Yes, indeed. But the primary source of our growth as Christians and the primary source of our uh, assurance is always the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. That's always what it is. And really, when the scripture talks like that, it's really to asking the question, do you believe, you know, 
it's not talking about you know how much fruit you have all the time. I mean, the question is, is how much is enough? Yes, that's right. And you know, it's always a pleasure to take communion, and you know, go down there to the to the table, and to explain to the congregation when that passage in First Corinthians speaks of partaking in an unworthy manner. I think it's really important to to recognize that's not talking about how worthy you are in terms of your holiness. Partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, I think primarily is partaking it with a self-righteous attitude. I have a right to this. I, I have I, I am holy enough to take communion. Now, if you have gross, scandalous, unrepentant sin uh, in your life, yes, that, that would you would need to refrain. But to take the Lord's Supper requires you to be broken and to be poor in spirit. Remember, Jesus pronounced those blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're self-assured in yourself, in your own spirituality, Jesus is not for you. You you live a life of perpetual poverty. You live a life of perpetual mourning over your sin, a, a life of perpetually hungering and thirsting for righteousness that you don't have and could never earn. Yes. And that's what the Lord's Supper is God's visible gospel. I have done this all for you. You hold out that empty, sin-stained hand. I give you the body and blood of my son, and that's your only hope. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, let's go back to um, when he talks about there are other conditions to be met. You know, sometimes we talk about salvation being um, present, future, right? So we talk about justification, sanctification, glorification. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. A lot of people talk this way. Now, there can be a danger in that language as well. So can you discuss how these things are, are called gnomic truths? Yes. Yeah, very, very important. Um, in fact, I was, I was just thinking about that. Um, I remember listening to a debate between um, a Protestant and a Roman Catholic on justification. <clears throat> and the Roman Catholic apologist cited uh, Romans 3.24, um, which just a little context there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He says, see, it's a present participle. We're, we're being saved. It's a, it's a process. And I was thinking that, that obviously that's not, that's not saying that you are experiencing a process of justification. That's stating a general truth. Like, let me give you an example. Um, my daughter, my daughter, Abigail uh, was single, but um, now uh, she is married being married on May the 29th. Now, it doesn't mean that she is in the process of being married. I have just stated when she was married, be, being married on um, the 29th. It's exactly the same way that that participle is used in Romans 3, 24, uh, being justified freely by his grace. It's stating a general truth, uh, not that justification is a process. It's not. It's a forensic legal verdict, and that, that's all it is. But people say, speak of, we shall be saved from his wrath. Um, that, that's a true statement. What, the reason that the Bible can say you have been saved by grace through faith, not by works of sandwich of those. And it also says, in, that's Ephesians 2, 8, 8, 9, and 10, Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved uh, from wrath through him, using the, the future tense there. The reason is salvation from sin, going to heaven, the justification before God, those are eschatological truths. Okay? Those are eschatological truths that the justification of sinners really is God at the final judgment, taking that verdict that is an absolute certainty and applying it to me right now. I have been justified, but I also will be 
in the future when I appear before God, but it, it's not a different justification. It's the same one. My justification was achieved at the, the cross of Christ. That's when the final judgment, the fullness of divine wrath fell on Jesus Christ was there. And as the, the great uh, Robert Raymond um, used, uh, had described this in a, an excellent way, I actually pulled that quote to use it here. Let me find it here real quick. Yeah, where he basically says here, let me, let me see if I can get it. Yeah, listen, Robert Raymond says, the doctrine of justification means then that in God's sight, the ungodly man, now in Christ, has perfectly kept the moral law of God, which also means in turn that in Christ, he has perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. It means that saving faith is directed to the doing and dying of Christ alone, and not to the good works or inner experience of the believer. It means that the Christian's righteousness before God is in heaven at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ and not on earth within the believer. It means that the ground of our justification is the vicarious work of Christ for us, not the gracious work of the Spirit in us. It means that the faith righteousness of justification is not personal, but vicarious, not infused, but imputed, not experiential, but judicial, not psychological, but legal, not our own, but a righteousness alien to us and outside of us not earned, but graciously given through faith in Christ. That is itself a gift of grace. It means, okay, this is the key part here. It means also in its declarative character that justification possesses an eschatological dimension for it amounts to the divine verdict of the eschaton being brought forward into the present time and rendered here and now concerning the believing sinner by God's act of justifying the sinner through faith in Christ, the sinner, as it were, has been brought before the time to the final assize and has already passed successfully through it, having been acquitted of any and all charges brought against him. Justification, then, properly conceived, contributes in a decisive way to the Calvinistic doctrine of assurance and the eternal security of the believer. When someone says it that well, you just let them uh, say it for you. Um, but he, yeah. he's on the money there. That's why justification, yeah, you're be, being saved, you've been saved, you shall be saved, not because it's a process of moral transformation, but because it's an eschatological reality that can be applied to all three tenses. It's a, it's a punctiliar thing. It happens the second, the instant a person believes you are justified equally, everyone is equally justified that's ever been justified, and we're all justified in exactly the same way, once for all, when that legal status changes. And that, it's as simple as that. And it can be spoken of as past tense having already happened. It, it's a future reality because it is an eschatological reality, but it's so certain that it can be spoken of in all three tenses here. Not because it's a process, but because of its absolute certainty since it's rendered by God. Yeah, I mean, the term eternal life has the eschatological tone in it, right? So he who, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. So, yeah, it's absolutely true. Yes. And, and that even there, you get justification by faith alone. He who believes has eternal life. You know, think of, uh, what is it, John 5, 24. Um, he who believes uh, in me uh, has eternal life and shall not pass, come into judgment, for he has passed from death into life. And there it is again, uh, the one who believes. Um. So, Patrick, can we look at some of the uh, uh, scripture context that Piper uses to build his theory here for the, the two-stage nature of justification? Yeah, we, we've referenced a couple of them. Uh, we looked at um, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 is uh, one of his favorites. And 
and, and I've, I've warned people about um, turning uh, phrases in, in verses into mantras, but there, there you have um, the, the connection, uh, the, the close proximity of the word sanctification to salvation. Um, but what it says there, let's uh, back up a little bit. Second Thessalonians 2, 11, uh, speaking about the appearance of the man of lawlessness. I've actually preached on this. I've, I've done a lot of work in Second Thessalonians 2 in, in the Olivet Discourse. I think, I think there's a lot of verbal parallels here. I, I really think it's talking about the same thing. But verse 11, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that those that don't receive a love of the truth, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And then verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. And then it says, really, in sanctification um, of the spirit and belief in the truth. And those are just general truths there as well. God sets us apart by his Holy Spirit. When his Holy Spirit takes up residence um, within us, we are, we are definitively set apart uh, as the, the possession of God. He is the, the earnest, the seal, you know, those passages in 2 Corinthians 1, and Ephesians 4. He has sealed us for the day of redemption. The Spirit sets us apart in that way and belief in the truth. So we were chosen for salvation through being set apart by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. Because two words appear in close proximity to one another, you don't want to turn this into, uh, really what he turns that into is, you are saved by being sanctified, or you are saved by your sanctification. And, and you think, okay, if your exegesis of a phrase of a verse overthrows the rest of what scripture teaches about said topic, you're getting the meaning wrong, and you don't want to use scripture that way. I mean, it's ironic, you know, Piper's supposedly like like a 19-point Calvinist out looking for six more points. <laughs> he knows how those phrases, world, all men, are commonly misused, and he would use the very same argument. Why, why would you base your understanding of who Jesus died for on a passing phrase rather than going to, you know, Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, and, and look at John 6, John 10, John 17. Look at the passages that are directly about the subject um, to, to find out who he died for specifically, rather than passing statements made in other places. And yet he does the same thing there. He does actually argue that way in his clarification, and he actually says that we are finally saved through our sanctification, or by our sanctification. Yeah, which, which is very consistent with his two-stage model. And that's what, again, I just want to emphasize to, to your listeners. People will say, like Onig pointed out, he defines justification exactly the way we do. And he uses the same passages. And he, he says it the same way. He says, if you, if you go the direction of justification by a little law-keeping, you go the direction of, of justification by total law-keeping. But what you have to just keep hammering away at is, Yes, but he doesn't think justification is what gets you into heaven. That's the problem. He thinks it's just initial justification. In fact, I wanted to read another quote. I found this. Uh, there's an article on Desiring God called, Does James Contradict Paul? Now, listen. just listen to this, uh, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this. Here, here's what Piper says. But if you ask them, does justification as an ongoing and final right standing with God depend on the works of love? Paul is going to say, no, if by works you mean deeds done to show that you deserve God's ongoing blessing. And James is going to say, yes, if by works you mean the fruit and evidence of faith like Abraham's obedience on Mount Moriah. And Paul is going to say, I agree with James based on his definitions. And James is going to say, I agree with Paul based on his definitions. And listen to this. 
So when Paul renounces justification by works, he renounces the view that anything we do along with faith is credited to us as righteousness. Only faith obtains the verdict, not guilty, when we become Christians. Works of any kind are not acceptable in the moment of initial justification. That's one of the clearest places I've ever heard him actually use the phrase initial justification. I've said to my congregation, when you hear the word initial in front of the word justification, watch out. There's a false gospel coming. Because justification is the whole thing. Justification is the fruit of what Jesus Christ did that gets us into heaven. Listen to the rest of it, though. Piper says, but when James affirms justification by works, he means that works are absolutely necessary in the ongoing life of a Christian to confirm and prove the reality of the faith which justifies. For Paul, justification by works, which he rejects, means gaining right standing with God by the merit of works. And listen to this sentence. For James, justification by works means maintaining a right standing with God by faith along with the necessary evidence of faith, namely the works of love. Folks, if we preach to people, you maintain your standing in the sight of God as justified by your works, that's as clear of a false gospel as you can preach. Maintaining, yeah, so, yeah, maintaining a right standing by your works. Yeah. So it's, it's clear his understanding of sanctification is synergistic. It's clear that his uh, understanding of sanctification is efficacious, I would say, because if we're maintaining our right standing with God, then our sanctification, being synergistic, being uh, responsible for it ourselves, therefore we're, ma we're maintaining that standing with God rather than the Reformed understanding is that God is the one preserving his saints uh, and... Um, the preservation or the, what's the other P word? Perseverance, thank you, of the saints. So, yeah, it is a def definite contradiction. Yeah, and the problem, one of the main things that we all, that I, as a minister of the gospel, one of the things I'm very, very zealous to protect um, is, is that the only thing God looks at to let someone in heaven is the righteousness of Christ. What is it that he renders that verdict? that declared righteous going to heaven, that is the blood and righteousness of Christ. You can't put anything else in that equation. You start talking about saved through fruit, saved through, finally saved by sanctification. You have the subjective, sin-stained, soiled, wrong-motived works of the believer as in some way getting you past that final judgment and rescuing you from the wrath of God. But wait a sec. But wait a second, Patrick. Look at um, Abraham and Isaac. You know they had to affirm their works before God, and he was the only audience watching. <laughs> yeah, um, that passage in uh, in James chapter two um, critically important. They they, I mean, both Paul and James, Paul in Romans four and James and James chapter two, appeal to Abraham as their example, but they're appealing to very different episodes in Abraham's life. And James chapter 2 is probably one of the most misused uh, passages in the whole Bible because what it's addressing is whether or not someone is justified in regard to what? In saying they have faith. That's what the whole paragraph's about, James 2.14. What does a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? Okay, so right there, talking about someone who makes a profession of faith. 
If someone says they have faith and their life is in no way distinguishable from an unbeliever, um, is that true in saving faith then? Uh, well, no, it can't be because faith is always accompanied by the new birth and all those other things that God always does. But here, one of the things I've pointed out to people for a long time, the reason you cannot say that Paul and James are talking about justification in the very same way, Paul in Romans 4.10 says, ask the question, when, how then was righteousness accounted to Abraham? Was it before or after he was circumcised? I tell you, not after, but before. Abraham was justified once when he believed God, Genesis 15, 6, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And I would ask the question, when is the offering of Isaac in Genesis 22 in relation to Abraham's circumcision? Afterwards. If you argue James is talking about justification by works in some way, in the same forensic sense that, that Paul was speaking, now you have an irreconcilable contradiction. You really have James um, giving the victory to Paul's enemies because Paul says it was not after, but before that he was justified. And the offering of Isaac is after Abraham's circumcision. And so really the paragraph in James 2 is not hard to understand. He's addressing how can a person be justified in saying they have faith if they have no works? So those who do not make, who do not distinguish between justification and its uses in James 1 versus James 2 are basically interpreting it like a Roman Catholic. Exactly. And they're also making it one of the most common errors of, of really beginning Bible students. You, you learn the definition of a word and you, you assume it means that everywhere it's used. And we can't do that. I mean, even in John's gospel by itself, there are at least 14 different distinct usages of the Greek word cosmos, world. I mean, it's used in a whole slew of different ways. The, the verb um, justified, dikaio, is used in lots of different ways. And how do you know how it's being used from the context that it's used in? But didn't he, excuse me, but didn't he have to confirm Abraham and Isaac's works and their faith? No, God, God already knew he had faith. But what this is talking about is the demonstration of a person's profession before men. Okay, not before God. God, God knew Abraham already had had faith. <laughs> yeah, and, and people have to also remember that God uses language, especially in the Old Testament, in a certain way that men can understand, right? Anthropomorphisms. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, he, and even there, you know, uh, when God, after uh, the angel comes down and stops Abraham from slaying Isaac, God says, now I know that you fear God. You know, and the, of course, our, our open theist friends have had a field day with that. See, he didn't know. Um, I actually had an open theist uh, tell me once that when God said in the Garden of Eden, Adam, where are you? That he literally couldn't find him, that he, he had lost him. And <laughs> I told that individual, no, um, it's the same reason I ask my kids, where are you? When I can see their feet sticking out from under the curtains. It's to give them an opportunity to <laughs> come out and confess what they're doing. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. That's really good. Okay, what about, um, let's see here. We can go to another one that John Piper uses, and um, that will be Romans 13, 11. It says, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed past, present, uh, fast, uh, it says past, present process and future completion. This is why we have to be so careful about using the term justification interchangeably with salvation. 
Yeah, that I, me I remember him when he said that in this clarification video, and I and I stopped the, the video there and was like, that that is really bad um, exegesis of what that's saying. Now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. All that means is that, like like Paul told the people in Athens, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Yet every single second that goes by us goes into the uh, into the realm of eternity past, and we are that much closer um, to Christ coming back. And that's what that's talking about. For him to interpret that as meaning, our salvation is nearer in the sense that we are in the process of experiencing salvation or something, like the process of moral transformation. Uh, that's just not it at all. Um, there's this, like I read from Robert Raymond, there's an eschatological dimension to salvation with the second coming of Christ uh, when he comes back. That's not, that's not addressing um, the way he puts it, you know, initial step, present process, future completion. It just means Christ is coming back. Uh, it's getting closer every day. Well, another thing that kind of really bothers me is when these teachers go to such passages and say, well, you should know them by their fruits, and it's talking about the Pharisees. And they say, well, no, you have to see that they're, you have to look for moral transformation or, you know, behaviorism in their life that needs to be transformed. Well, that's a problem because they lived pretty good moral lives, right? And the, what is that fruit? It's false teaching. Yeah. It's it's not always talking about someone's works. Yeah, right. Yeah, they you could know them by their fruits and and they 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 were hypocrites um in the way they they lived their lives. Right. It's so it's not just it, it is their lives, but it's also the teaching as well. It has to correspond to one another. But it seems like people like to focus on some kind of behaviorism. Yeah, and and that's that's what the, the church the, and ministers in the church are supposed to be ministers of the gospel, meaning you don't want to, to create a piety that has people looking inward and, and doing navel-gazing. What you're aiming at is to get people to, to keep their eyes fixed on, on Christ and on the freeness of God's grace. It, it sounds paradoxical. It, it's like the only way you can really bring about real transformation and real holiness is not by beating people over the head with more requirements. It's preaching Christ and him crucified and getting people to, to stay focused on him and not, never look at it as just, well, this is just the initial step. It's, it's the whole thing. You're, you're clinging to the cross throughout your entire Christian life, um, and you never leave the cross. You, you just keep clinging to, to that and to him and to what he did. Um, yes, inspect yourself. If you have sin in your life, let's fight against it. Let's, we'll come alongside you and pray for you. If you've got things in your life you need to cut off and pluck out, let's cut them off and pluck them out. Let's get rid of the internet or get rid of, of whatever. Take those steps that are necessary. But the fuel behind the Christian life has got to always be uh, the gospel. Because remember, remember what uh, Rome's arrow or quiver of arrows did to Luther? It's almost like their false gospel. It can only do one of two things. It either produces Pharisees who, who think they're pulling it off or it creates people who are neurotic and depressed and out of their minds like Luther was. So, Patrick, I think we should get into something right here that kind of really stuck out to me. Um, and I think that is Piper's misunderstanding of um, the gospel, of course, and law. And he confuses the two and turns it into what Horton calls the gospel. The gospel, yeah. 
Yeah, that that distinction, as as Martin Luther was so good to um, to hammer out, and um, in fact, that make a little book recommendation. It's probably out of print, but Robin Lever wrote a little paperback book called Luther on Justification. It's just a goldmine of, of good stuff about law, the law and the gospel and um, making sure you keep those categories clean. But that's also part of not just the Lutheran tradition, but that's, the Reformed tradition holds the very same distinction. And <clears throat> when it comes to justification, there's the law and there's the gospel. The law, as Paul says in Romans 4.15, the law brings about wrath. If you put conditions that, that are fulfilled by the sinner um, into what saves them, um, you've confused law and gospel. And that, that's, that's not only damaging to Christian piety, it's, it's fatal uh, to the gospel. Uh, you got to keep the gospel clean. The gospel is the doing and dying of Christ. The, the Latin phrase the Lutheran, old Lutheran dogmaticians use is, it's the favor dei propter Christum. It's the favor of God on account of Christ. And that's all it is. That's all the gospel is. And you can't mix anything in there with it. And this seems to be the same problem with many teachers, whether it's Piper, whether it's MacArthur, whether it's Platt, on and on and on. There's a confusion of law and gospel, and this is why it leads to confusion. And people are saying, well, you know, are these people really Calvinists? Do they really believe in eternal security? Am I doing enough? Are you radical enough? Et cetera, et cetera. That's the problem. And think, think about the, the opening sections of the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, I have a, a, a dear uh, child that's struggled mightily with assurance, and I gave him a, a little leather-bound copy of the Heidelberg Catechism. I said, just read through this. And he came into my room later and said, this is wonderful. He said, I love how it says that. From, where, from whence do you know your sin and misery? Answer, the law of God. That's right. I said, that's what its primary purpose is in the life of, really, of the unbeliever and of the believer, even after he's saved. Is to show us our sin and misery and to drive us to Christ. Yeah, that one. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I picked up a few of those, and he's been reading through that. I said, isn't that wonderful, though? Um, you need to know your sin and misery. You learn that from the law of God, and then you need to understand um, the, the greatness of divine grace and the redemption that's given to us in Christ. So, yeah, the law is not there to justify you or save you or to help you. It is there to destroy you. There's another great uh, Charles Hodge uh, quote uh, recently read, and Hodge said, uh, the law was not given to save us. It was not given to justify us or to help us. It was to slay and destroy us. <laughs> and it certainly does that. It shows you how much you need a Savior. Yeah, amen. The gospel is um, is the power of God not only to save, but it's the power of God to encourage the believer and um, have them live a life upright knowing that they're, they're uh their salvation is sure because it is an objective one, right? It's outside of them. It's in, in Christ alone. So therefore, they um, they need need not fear, right? That's what that's what moves Christians to to uh, to further commitment to to greater love and to to greater joy, not warnings and and uh, uh, having them think, are they doing enough? It's yeah, it's it's terrible. It did, it, like you guys said, it it it's two things. It either causes great despair, or it causes uh, a Christian to think that hey, yeah, they're doing they're doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good here. Which causes yeah, this the, is, the, the pietism, right? Th this is exactly right. 
especially when we were talking about the Hebrews passage earlier, when that book is talking and warning people not to go back into former Judaism, it's not addressing the average pew person that we see today. Yeah. Unless we have um, devout Jews that were converted out of Judaism and are attempted perhaps to go back to Judaism while the temple was still standing. Um, yeah, that, that's, it's dealing with a, a very specific form of apostasy, like we were talking on the phone, uh, Matthew, uh, going back to the old way, going back to uh, the animal sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, um, all that kind of stuff. And that people absolutize it and turn it into a uh, no holiness, no heaven. You're, you're not holy enough. You're not getting into heaven. Um, yeah, and we're, we are commanded to pursue holiness. Uh, we are commanded to strive for peace. We are commanded to put our sin to death. But I think what, what's missing from the understanding of a lot of, of, of Piper and, and in some ways also probably MacArthur um, is that the gospel alone is what um, provides the, the true motivation to really love neighbor and to, to want to be holy, to want to be holy. You set men free completely. And it sounds like you guys are antinomians. You're going to just, people are going to live like dogs and pigs and not even care. No, they won't because God renews them and changes them through that free gospel. It's called regeneration. Right. That's right. The new birth and those new desires, you know, the Puritans talked about holy aspirations and you know, God creates those. Us. Those don't come from me, but my desire to, to quit committing my besetting sins, that doesn't arise from me. That arises from the work of the spirit uh, in my formerly stony heart that he made alive. All right. So, question people talk about you know people coming to the lord in the end at their final salvation and christ says to them look let me take a look at your works right how does how does that work out between someone's works and god judging those works and someone's rewards and people say well look at matthew the book of matthew and it says well done good and faithful servant doesn't that mean that Christ is going to confirm our works to see whether we're genuine or not? No. Um, and it, it's a, it is a sad and disheartening misuse of what ought to be very, very encouraging passages of Scripture. For the longest time, Romans 2, those who by patience and continuance seek for glory, honor, and immortality shall reap eternal life. <clears throat> Jesus said those who have done good to the resurrection of life um, and you have all these, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive those things done in the body, whether good or bad. Those used to really scare me and terrify me until I finally understood those are supposed to encourage me as a Christian. Because God is so gracious and so loving and such a wonderful father. He not only forgives me of all my sins and accepts me once and for all in Christ, he'll even reward my sin-stained works as a Christian. He even rewards that. Now, that reward is not salvation. That reward is not eternal life. That reward is not justification. But it really is a real reward of some kind. God is that gracious that he even accepts my sin-stained attempts at obedience and doesn't forget my works. You know, and uh, the, the guy or one of the podcasts you had me listen to, you, the guy used an illustration. I've used something similar to it. If I could turn my camera in my um, office here around, I'd show you all my kids' artwork all over the wall. <laughs> It's not very good, most of it. <laughs> it's, there's stuff, there's misspelled words. There's like splotches of, of stuff all over. There's, you know, glitter falling off of it. 
and my little girls make me something and bring it to me, I don't point out, you spelled, you spelled my name wrong. You spelled this wrong. How dare you give this? I kiss them on the forehead and take them up in my arms and thank them for doing that for me. And I'm evil. I'm bad. God is a perfect father. Right. He rewards even the sin-stained works of his, of his own children. Those passages are supposed to be an encouragement to us, but these neonomians and false teachers say, you better get busy. You better be doing this. You better be doing that. And they, and they really miss the point of all of them. It's to encourage us. Yeah, amen. Yeah. God, God's fatherly goodness. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think. He, 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 it's almost like he, he loves his children so much, he's not content merely to pardon and justify and accept and adopt us. He even rewards the, the stuff we did as soiled with sin as it was. And think about the, uh, the Westminster Confession. One of my favorite chapters of the Westminster Confession um, is chapter 16 of Good Works. Listen, listen to some of these statements from it um, to help understand what those passages are talking about. Chapter 16 um, says, Those good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end of eternal life. And then it says, <clears throat> their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly of the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, besides beside the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. There, citing Philippians 2, 11 and 12. Yet are they not hereupon here to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, uh, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God. Now, it goes on from there. Listen to this section here. This is what people need to remember. Point five, 16.5. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life. And I would add, or final salvation at the hand of God by reason, listen, by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from his Holy Spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and perfection. They cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. That's why you don't want to call upon people to believe in their sanctification for their quote unquote final salvation. Those works are mixed with so much weakness and imperfection. They can't endure the severity of God's judgment. And then, Lastly, last thing I'll read to you here. Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon those works in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Those passages should be an encouragement, not a discouragement. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's wonderful. Saddens me. They're misused all the time. You know, you must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to, to receive those things down the body. That, that should be an encouragement to us. Sure. Patrick, here's another quote by Piper. I know we're kind of belaboring the point, but here's another quote. Um, Belabor away. Okay. So Piper quotes 
Obedience and love are the necessary confirmations that we are born again, truly united to Christ by faith alone. Here's the way Paul says it. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. What do you think about that? I don't like the use of the word confirmation. What you said earlier, consequence, fruit, evidence. That's the way our, our confessions speak about it, because that's really the best way of summarizing the biblical data. These are, are the consequence um, of, of our belief. The way he speaks about them is confirming. He, he speaks about it really in a forensic way, in a judicial way. These works confirm the faith that alone justifies, but then there's this final salvation by that fruit. You know, Matthew, you mentioned, really, how else can you understand final salvation from the wrath of God except being final justification? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's really, the functionally, that is what's being said there. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're, they don't confirm or in a forensic way, but they, they are fruit and evidence of, of a true and lively faith. No, that's great. We appreciate the clarification. And we want to... We want to um, make it clear to you that this is not just a, a personal attack on Dr. Piper, but we are concerned at the same time about his teachings, especially on this issue, because we, we consider it dangerous. It's an attack on the gospel, and, and we think that people should be aware of this. And look, if you don't trust us, read it for yourself. Go read those articles. Look up these quotes on the internet, and you decide for yourself. But look, he's very unclear, he's contradictory, and when you look at someone who constantly contradicts himself, you have to really be wary of that kind of a teacher. Yeah, yeah and there's a, it's actually um, more specifically warned about that very thing in 1 Timothy 6.20. He says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And what's interesting is that word contradictions is the Greek word antithesis. If people contradict themselves a lot, it's because there's something seriously wrong. Um, we want to be consistent, especially on the gospel. Like you said, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of doctrines you can, we can um, be, be gracious over and disagree on um, and still be brethren. But when you're addressing the doctrine of justification with such emphasis as he is, and are hitting it so hard and are saying at the top of your lungs at a 500th anniversary reformation service, you don't get into heaven by faith alone. We have to stand up and say, no, you can't put it that way. That is, that is not the gospel. Initial justification by faith alone, final salvation by fruit. That's not the gospel that Paul taught. That's not the gospel we believe. Okay. So before we, Get going. Patrick, what is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. And the way Paul defines the gospel is knowing that a man is not justified by works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But it's like you want to see the gospel in, in clear relief. Galatians 2.16 states it four times in one verse and denies works in it four times in one verse. 
Uh, so Galatians 2.16 is a great text. It's basically the doing and dying of Jesus Christ is the only thing that's going to get you into heaven, and you need to rely only on that. Amen. Thank you. And Patrick, um, if people want to reach you, um, where can they do so? You have a YouTube channel. I know you have a church website. Yes, it's uh, BridwellHeightsPCA.org. Um, is our church's website, and, and there's ways you can contact uh, me through that. Or you can just uh, email me at pastor at bridwellheightspca.org. And Onig, where can people reach us? They can email us at info at bttrmin.org. Again, info at bttrmin.org, or back to the reformation at gmail.com. Our podcast is streamed on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and they can stream it from our website, bttrmin.org. Yep. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And I also want to make a statement before we end the show that, you know, when you guys online, whether on Facebook or elsewhere, be gracious with one another while dialoguing about these things and be patient and don't be so quick to jump on those who would point something like this out that really do your research, you know, and... I think that's the way this ought to be carried out. Um, but, you know, stand for the gospel and don't be afraid to do so. And, Patrick, I really appreciate you coming on and standing for the truth, brother. Thank you, guys. I really, really appreciate you guys and um, have been recommending your, your podcast to, to all and sundry. Uh, and really excited to see it. It looks, it just looks, I've enjoyed the programs I've listened to. And uh, it's, it's good. I, I've been listening to it on a little JBL speaker that I put on my baby's stroller in the early morning hours. <laughs> so I'm actually outside sometimes yelling things in the early morning. So I'm going to be waking up my neighbors while I'm listening to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, you've been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast, and we hope you come back and listen next time. See ya.